is from the book of Micah, chapter 3. It's on page 777 of your pew Bible. That's a good number. Uh, beginning at the first verse. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, it is not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, to eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against them who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice, and make crooked all that is straight, who build with Zion with blood, and Jerusalem with iniquity. It gives its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price. Prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is it not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, especially those of us that are parents, and grandparents, I need to tell, I, I do not need to tell you that the season of Christmas has begun, right? Um, I'm kind of old fashioned. I, I like to at least wait until December 1st to, to, to begin to pretend like it's actually Christmas time. But, you know, I haven't done any deep um, study on this, but I bet um, my gut tells me that in our culture in America, the number one day that we actually take a long time to prepare for is Christmas Day. When you think about it, I mean, you look at all the ways that now stores are beginning to put stuff earlier and earlier um, in, in, on a display for you to buy to prepare for Christmas. And of course, we in the, in the Smith family, we have various traditions, various rituals that we do to prepare for this glorious day of uh, capitalism in which we also re remember the birth of our Savior Christ. Um, but one of, you know, we, it's, it's, it's the getting of the tree from the food lion, right? That's one of our rituals. We look forward to, to, to that. Quickly following that is, and, and I learned this, this is a long Smith man tradition. It happens every time. It's, it's the annual cussing of the Christmas tree, right? Where we, uh, where we blaspheme our Lord numerous times in an attempt to uh, wrestle a Fraser fir or a pine tree into our home. Um, but uh, whatever it is, I, I think what's fascinating about this season is that between all of the, of the buying and the planning and the cards, there's so much preparation that goes in to prepare ourselves to enjoy that one day of the year, Christmas Day. 
And of course, um, for, for us who are uh, Christians, this day, of course, is the day that we remember not just Christ's first coming, but from the earliest days of the church, the, uh, they have used Christmas Day to not just focus on that glorious day, which for us is in the past, but for us to actually focus on a more glorious day in the future. And that day is the day of when Christ comes back to earth. And so to uh, pull us out of the busyness of life, out of the nowness of life, what the church has done for over 2,000 years, it isn't in the Bible, but it's still very helpful, is the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day, we have something called Advent. And Advent is just simply a Latin word that means to prepare for or, or, or you know, so, something's coming, Right. And so what Advent does is it pulls us out of kind of our day-to-day -day walk and reminds us of something incredibly important in the Christian life. And that's to remember that there is a day. History doesn't just go on and on and on. It just doesn't just go in this endless cycle. But we have a worldview that says, actually, we're working towards something. There will be a day when our Savior comes back and all that's broken will be fixed. All that's untrue will come untrue. All death will, will be erased and the specter of sickness and death will, will be no more. And there will be judgment. There will be judgment. So with that preparation for the second coming of Christ in mind and this reality of that when Christ comes back, there, there will be judgment upon all the earth. Very, not kind of your typical Christmas theme, is it? You're not getting much judgment in um, Target these, these days. But as we go into uh, what's, what's an Old Testament prophet, Micah. Now, once again, just, just a footnote. There's, they're, they're not two gods of two different... It's like that, you know, Old Testament's wrath and New Testament's love. There's wrath and love in both, right? But I think to really hear... What the Lord wants us to hear about how we prepare for the coming of Christ and the reality of that day, we're in Micah. And as we look at our reading for, for today, Micah 3, and the reason why um, uh, Robert said 777 is a good number is in the Bible. Numbers mean something. They're always symbolic, and that's the number of perfection, right? So 666, right? Um, that's the number of imperfection, right? Seven, seven, seven is the number of perfection. Um, so, uh, but, but anyway, if you want to join me um, on page 777 of your pew Bibles, I'd love for you to kind of follow along with me here. But as we, as we look at uh, Micah 3 through, through a 12, um, I believe that there are three points or three things that we can pull out of this for Advent. And there are three R's. I work really hard on this, right? There are three R's. The reality of judgment, the rescue from judgment, and the relief caused by judgment. The reality of judgment, the rescue from judgment, and the relief to us that's caused by when we know that there's judgment. I have to kind of shoehorn that last R in. Don't judge me too harshly. <laughs> So first thing, the hardest thing, the thing that I don't think any human heart wants to hear that we're going to be judged, that the reality of our sinfulness is going to be brought up and we're going to be transparent. No human heart wants to hear that. Certainly not mine, but it's especially true in our culture, isn't it? 
Because you see, the first thing that the scripture tells us is actually something really, really unpleasant. And it's tempting for me because I because I like you all. I like, you know, um, I want you to, to, to like me. Right. Um, but uh, once again, as I say, whenever I preach a hard passage, if, if you have a beef with this, your beef is with the Bible. It's not with me. Take it out on the Bible. OK. Um, but there's a reality that I would be actually committing unloving malpractice to you. I wouldn't be loving you and me if I didn't speak about the reality that God's judgment upon sinners it's real. It's real. Now, some, some, some context here. What's, what's happening? Well, the prophet Micah is, a, is a writing about 700 years before Christ was uh, born. Um, and what's fascinating is the focus of the scripture here isn't upon the whole world. The whole um, book of uh, Micah addresses that. But our scripture reading here is focused specifically on the leaders of God's people. The prophets, the priests, and the kings. Because you see, at the time that uh, Micah was uh, writing, it was, it was an incredibly prosperous time for this nation. They were wealthy. They were growing. But surprise, surprise, they were corrupt. The leaders were exploiting the very people that they were supposed to protect and shepherd and bless for, for personal gain. Look at what our scripture says. Probably some of the most uh, 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 powerful language. Hear, o, hear you, O heads of Jacob, which is a way of saying Israel. Um, hear, and, and rulers of the house of, of um, Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil. Who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> no, and, and then again, 11a, if you, if you flip over, it's heads, meaning those, those prophet, priests, and kings, give judgment for a bribe. It's priests teach for a price. It's prophets practice divination for money. Clearly, at our gut level, this is wrong. This is wrong. Whenever I try to preach on, you know, it's... it's judgment right is it wrong is it too subjective how can i ever say anyone's wrong when there's so much wrong with 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 me but i think you know over god lord 13 years of being ordained what i found is that it's part of our created order that inside of us and i'll actually talk on this when we talk about our relief but actually inside of us there is this place where we know that for there to be real love, there has to be real justice. There has to be real justice. And so what we have here is not a God who's distant from the pain and suffering of the people, but a God who is so full of love, a God that's so full of compassion that it requires him to bring punishment upon those 
who do not love him and do not love their neighbor as themselves. Think about this just very simply. Whether you're married or not, it doesn't matter. All of us have someone in our lives who we love. Now, what would happen if someone came out of the blue and hurt that person whom we held the most dear? Maybe a parent, maybe a child, maybe a spouse, whatever it might be. And they hurt them and they abuse them. What if you just said, well, I want to judge that person. I don't want to condemn them. I don't want to say that what they did was wrong. I can't stand over them. How do you think the person that you love that was hurt would, would feel? Is that real love? And of course, the answer is no. The answer is no. Real love. Whenever what you love is in danger, you want to bring justice to the people that have harmed them. So I understand that this concept of justice, of God actually bringing harsh consequences to our failures, is unpalatable in our culture. And it's, I don't like it. I don't like it. But, but the reality is, is that what we don't have here is a vindictive God. What we have here is a God who is saying, I really care about people and I really care about sin. And, and, if I, and I would not be loving unless there were actual consequences, if there was, if there was real punishment for sins. Because I love my people. And when my people are hurt, I'm hurt. And of course, his people are the people of the whole world. So the first thing that we need to begin to wrestle with here is that on the day when Christ comes back, it will first and foremost be a day of judgment, of judgment. Where all of our sins will be put forward and all of our failures will be splayed up. You'll be shocked at what you've seen, I've thought. <laughs> You'll be shocked at what you've seen, I've done. That's the hard reality. But of course, Christianity is what? Good news? So that brings us to our second point. If there's a reality of judgment, that everybody who has sinned, which is all of us, deserve destruction because of our sins, there's a second point that's good news. That in Jesus Christ, we have a rescue from judgment. Now, if you've ever been to St. Thomas's church for any length of time, you can pretty much tell what my last point's going to be. I'm going to preach the good news of Jesus Christ who saved us from our sins, right? But that's really my last point. I said to go ahead and move that up in the order, right? Given the severity of what we just heard. Because I just didn't want you just to sort of run out in despair, right? But you see, the beauty of what this points towards is the fact that we, every single one of us, certainly me included, if not me more so, deserve the everlasting wrath and punishment for sins. And no amount of good work could ever erase them. No amount of good deeds could, could ever assuage God's wrath. No, some perfect man had to come and die in our place. And you see, as hard as this day of judgment is, 
that's impending on all of us. The good news is that there's a place to escape. There's a place to take shelter underneath the shelter of Jesus Christ. If you've heard anything about Christianity, I pray that you've heard this. I know we've got some new people here. I see some, some new faces. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time, maybe for, for the hundredth time. Either way, it's good news. Is the basic message of Jesus Christ is that God so loved us that Jesus Christ, his second son, voluntarily came down, took on flesh, as we sung about, and took <laughs> the fullness of God's wrath for us. And you see, when Jesus Christ came down, when he went up on, on the cross, all of the condemnation that was pointed at, at these people here was poured out on Jesus Christ. He was the one who was shoved into darkness, verse 6 tells us. He would, he would be the one, verse, 10, verse 12 tells us, who would be plowed under as a field. Think about that, that imagery of Christ on the cross. Literally Christ being plowed under by the weight of, of, of our sins. Jesus Christ became a heap of ruins. And he became the wooded place where a mountain house once stood but is now gone. In short, Jesus Christ took all of the wrath for our sins. And so on the day of judgment, we could be declared not guilty. And here's the most scandalous part. The most scandalous part of this whole thing is that I pray that the spirit of the Lord has put weight on you as he does on me about the reality of my sins. They aren't small things. They're real things. They're big things. Real people are hurt by my actions or inactions. I'm causing damage to the world just by waking up in the morning. And yes, Jesus Christ died for me. But the most scandalous thing is the way that we take hold of this great salvation. Is not by some great work. It's not just by cleaning our lives up and living right. It's not by giving away money or, or trying to be a good person. The most scandalous thing that a sinful human heart needs to do to be declared not guilty of sins, past, present, and future on the day of judgment is just to trust that he did that for us. It's just that simple. It's just that small. It's just that easy. And it's just that terrifying. And it's just that dangerous. I use this illustration all the time. And I'm going to use it one more time. So I get to sit through it again. Faith, I think, is the most under, misunderstood thing in the Christian faith. I sat in on um, uh, the, the women's Bible study um, just this past uh, Monday night. Because it was at my house, right? So I'm just going to sort of barge in, right? Um, and what was great is we had this great conversation about faith. And what we began to see was a lot of people were, they, they weren't really comforted by this idea of faith because they felt like that they didn't have enough faith. Okay, I kind of believe, I kind of, this is, but I don't have, but I'm, I'm not as strong as Moses in, in, in his faith. I'm not as strong as the, the apostles in their faith. So if I have weak faith, will I be saved? And this beautiful illustration, which somebody blessed me with, and which I love to bless y'all with, is this. 
as, as many of you know, I went to seminary in England, and to do that, we had to fly a bunch of times back and forth. I love to fly. I'm the, I mean, this is not a surprise. I'm a super nerd, okay? I had all kind of flight video games growing up, okay? I, and, and so I know airplanes. I know about flying. I know about all the beauty of how airplanes are and how pilots are well-trained. And so for me, flying is really exciting. In fact, I'm disappointed by a smooth flight. Give me turbulence because I want to have fun on this one. I want to see what this plane can really do, right? How good is this pilot really? My wife, who's much more sane, Hates it. Hates it. And so she, you know, she got a million questions. How old is, is this plane? How old is the pilot? He looked very young. Or he looked really too old to be flying this airplane. Uh, what happens if this happens? What, what's, what's going on here? She, she has little joy in flying. Well, I get on the plane. I'm excited. Get the window seat. Lizzie gets on the edge, you know, so the drinks cart can be right there for her. You can tell her I said that. Um, so I get on the plane with strong faith. She gets on the plane with weak faith. Who gets to England? We both do. Why? Because faith is just getting on the plane with all of our doubts and all of our fears and all of our questions and all the things that we don't understand. We still say, all right, I want to get from here to there. I want to get from Charleston to London. I want to get from my sinful self into the kingdom of God, but I can't get myself there. So with all of my doubts and all of my fears and all of my questions, I'm going to trust that Jesus Christ can get me there. So the judgment is real. There's rescue. And there's rescue even for those of us with the weakest, frailest hearts. And now that takes us to our third point. There's also, strangely, for those of us that have put our trust in Christ, there's this strange relief caused by the fact that there will be a day of judgment one day. There will be a day of judgment one day. Well, let me explain it. The first thing that I, I want to point out is when we begin to look at our Savior as yes, or, or, or our God rather, as yes, de de declaring that there will be this day of judgment, right? But actually, let's take a step back. After that first really offends us, that we have you know, been sinners and we've been essentially exploiting people and all these awful sins... Is this word not actually a word of incredible love? Let me explain. If we love someone and someone and that someone is actively engaging in activity that will lead to their destruction and you can rescue them. If you love them, what will you do? You will cry out. You will warn them. And parents, you know this well. The more destructive the behavior, the less subtle you have to be. When your child is walking towards, you know, when your toddler is walking towards the electrical socket with a fork, is that the time to kind of invite them to have a conversation about reflecting upon the wisdom of what they're doing? No, what are you saying? Stop! You idiot! 
What are you doing? You're going to die. And so what we have here, I want you to kind of have a new relationship or see these really harsh words of condemnation in a new light because they're not words of condemnation in the sense that this is true and you can never escape from it or else what I just said is an absolute lie. This is a wake-up warning. One of my favorite um, theologians, well, she is an author too, uh, but uh, Flannery O'Connor of, of, a, of a Southern literature fame wrote this. And just think about this from the standpoint of maybe God saying it, right? Why, why he wrote this in this way. Because, of course, Flannery O'Connor was known for these really freakish characters, right? And she writes this. The novelist with Christian concerns will find in modern life distortions which are repugnant to him. And his problem will be to make these appear as distortions to an audience which is used to seeing them as normal. Isn't that that us? Right? And he may well be forced to take even more violent means to get his vision across to his hostile audience. When you can assume your audience holds the same beliefs as you do, God, you know, God can't assume that, right? Because we, we don't see things. We're too sinful. We think evil looks good and good looks evil. You can relax a little and use more normal ways of talking to it. But when you have to assume that your audience does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the heart of hearing, you must shout. And for the almost blind, you must draw large and startling figures. You who tear the skin from off my people and from the flesh off their bones, you who chop them up and eat them. The stark, hard poetry to wake us up. Why? Because he wants to condemn us? No. Because he wants to rescue us. And so I invite you, the, the relief of judgment, if you will, the, the first thing, the relief of judgment is that our God loves us enough to speak in such harsh terms to wake us up. Quick footnote, if you're saying, yeah, okay, I hear you, but this is the God of the Old Testament, right? Jesus would never say this. Well, he does. In harsher terms than this. And if you ever want an example, look at Matthew 23, where he just goes on. Woe to you. Woe to you who do this. Woe to you who do that. Why? Because he wants to condemn us. No, because he wants to convict us that we need him more than we could ever imagine. That our goodness could never be enough. So he shakes that falsity out of us. Last thing. There are those of us in this room who have suffered at the hands of someone else. There are those of us in this room that, yes, while we are sinners, we're still victims. Maybe people we loved or people who made promises to us. Maybe the deepest promises a human being could ever make to another. Maybe a spouse or a child or a parent. There are those of you who are walking around this day true victims of injustice. And you're saying... Does anybody see? Does anybody care? And the answer that Micah and that, the, and that Advent points us towards and the great hope that we have and the great relief that we can rest in now is that there will be a day where all the wrongs done to us 
will be righted by our Savior, Jesus Christ. They are not forgotten. They have not disappeared, for the Lord sees them all. Of course, we pray that they would, would repent. Of course, we pray that they too would be given the power to stop trusting in themselves and trust in Jesus Christ to, to save them. But if you're struggling right now and you think God doesn't care about what happened to you, know that right now he does care. And that there will be a day where all the wrongs done to you and those you love will be made right. So. Advent, we prepare for the second coming of, of our Savior Christ, remembering that judgment is real, but that there is rescue from that judgment, even in weak faith in the person of Jesus Christ, and that now we can enjoy the relief that that judgment brings by a Savior who loves us enough to warn us and who will make all wrongs right. And this is good news for us sinners in the week. Amen.